Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. For our podcast today, we have a conversation between Sean and I about uh, something that has come into the, the public schools that has been recently instituted uh, by the California Department of Education. They are new California health standards that are going to be applicable throughout the public schools in the state of California. Um, and so we want to just, we don't have, it's just going to be the two of us today. Uh, we want to talk about what's, what's in these new health standards, why it matters, uh, why it matters if you're a parent or if you're a student or if you're a teacher, uh, and there's there's a lot there's a lot to unpack here, and so we want to do that in the next few minutes. It's also available still for uh, for comment uh, that you can give to uh, you know educational officials. Uh, it will it will not be formally adopted until May of 2019, uh, so there's still time to have some sort of comment on it. Uh, at least there will be by the time this podcast is first posted. Uh, so, uh, the, the reason, part of the reason we're talking about this is because California typically sets trends for the rest of the country. That's right. Uh, and I don't think this area is any different than that. Uh, so, Sean, uh, what, what's the goal for these new, uh, these new standards that will be applied throughout public education in California on health and wellness uh, and we'll also include a lot of things that have to do with sexuality. Well, my kids do go to a private school, but I went to a public school. My wife taught at a public school. And I started hearing about this kind of the end of 2018 and beginning of 2019, that there was this new health education framework that was being instituted in California. It was kind of in the back of my mind. I heard a little podcast on it, a couple articles here and there, but it didn't seem to get huge press. And finally, just a few weeks ago, I thought, you know what, I'm going to read this for myself, make up my own mind, and I want to see what the California Department of Education is mandating to be taught to kids, kindergarten all the way up. Now, of course, the intention is, in chapter one, it says, the health of California youth may be improved by high-quality health education. Well, that makes perfect sense. I have no interest in question anybody's motivation behind these health standards. I really think they're trying to help kids be more healthy so they can learn more and it benefits our state. That's great. My concern though are really two things. That the state has intentionally adopted a progressive view of student health that undermines a religious view of human flourishing, whether it's Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Mormon, or even other conservatives that may not be of a religious nature. And second, it claims to be diverse, inclusive, and open, but in reality is none of these. So that's kind of what's going on, so my concern. Now, I, w I would say there's a lot of good stuff in this. We have to recognize that. There's stuff about proper nutrition. Excellent. I love in public schools. They've taken out candy and soda, put in healthier stuff. Great. There's stuff about injury prevention and physical safety measures. Now kids do drills for, you know, potential school shootings. All of this is wonderful. But in particular, which is no surprise, when it comes to issues of marriage and sexual health, 
there is a direct contradiction. And I would say, and I don't say this lightly, I think a systematic indoctrination of the next generation rather than genuine education. Yeah, one of the other things that, uh, I mean, in, in looking through this, one of the things that seemed to me to be really helpful in this was some of the, uh, some of the, some of the guidance and guidelines that they have for, both like, for both students and parents to deal with uh, media messages, so, yeah. social media, uh-huh. uh, things like that. To be, where, and we're hearing more and more about some of the, you know, some of the cautions that are being issued. Uh, you know, we hear about, for example, some of the some of the uh, the leaders of the tech industry not allowing their kids to have iPhones, right, uh, right. because of just some of the things that they see are happening to. You know, middle school, high school students. Uh, so I think that that'd be another, I think, really positive point of this. that's worth pointing out is that yep. they're they're, they're re- seem to be really in touch with uh, what media, particularly social media, is you know the impact that that's having on students today, uh, and how that can be better managed to make it more useful without incurring some of the downsides. So you, I know you've talked a lot about that too, and you've seen some of the some of the downsides about how that how that impacts the ability to form relationships, uh, and keeps sort of keeps life at a superficial, if not imaginary, level. Yeah, I, look, I was pleasantly surprised when I read through this. And by the way, if anybody just searches California Framework 2019 and throw in like education. This will come up, and there are, it must be between eight and ten different chapters that some of them are a hundred plus pages. I mean, this took me hours to read through. (laughs) And in some ways, I don't want our listeners to just take my word for it. I want them to go back and read it themselves carefully. And one of the things that jumped out, it said they want to teach kids how to recognize damaging media messages. I thought, this is wonderful. I want my kids to. Now, what they consider a damaging media message is going to vary. But in principle, it's clearly people that are trying to help out with kids. Again, my concern is just like, what are they teaching? How early are they teaching it? And how does this match up in particular with a Christian worldview? Well, let's let's go to that how early okay. part. Uh, because it's, it's pretty clear from chapter three in this that uh, the part of the intent is to start this really early. Uh, in fact, I was I was with uh, with a for, former student of mine, and a former student of mine on campus yesterday, uh, and he had two of his four kids with him, and they were holding their kids out of school to uh, on that particular day as a part of a protest about the implementation of these standards. And wow. two of their kids, uh, I think. I'm just going going by vision, but uh, they're the, the youngest kid with them. I think was a daughter who probably wasn't more than six or seven years wow. old. The older one was probably closer to nine or ten. Okay, um, but it struck me that they were, you know, they were holding her out because this was starting at that young an age. But here's the key to keep in mind, is that there was talk about how in Orange County you could not pull your kids from this education. So I did a little research, and there's a Snopes article on this. So I'm assuming they got it right. I I tracked down the sources, and they said you can, that, that educators have to warn parents ahead of time of the specific sex education training that's coming out related to, say, STDs or HIV, etc. But they cannot and will not warn them 
and parents cannot pull their kids from some of the training related to gender issues and identity mm. because that would be discrimination. So anybody who has a kid there has to realize they're not going to be told when this happens and they're not going to be given the right to pull out their kids, at least in Orange County. I can't speak to the rest of the county beyond. So anybody involved in this needs to go in right away, talk to parents, talk to principals, at least have a sense of what's going on specifically in their school find out what they can. Now, it's it's also pretty clear from this that uh, anybody who teaches or holds a position impacting students in the public schools has to be on board with this. That's right. But, you know, Biola's got a whole teacher education program. Uh, we, we put a lot of teachers into the public schools. Uh, this this could create really significant ethical issues for teachers who are teaching in elementary, middle school, and high school. What what do you think is the impact of this going to be on Christian teachers uh, in the public schools? So let me take a step back, if I can, and talk about the early education and then the question you're asking about educators. So you mentioned Chapter 3, page 43, and I document all this in a blog. People can access if it's helpful. Here's one of the stated goals of the kindergarten sex education. It says, quote, while students may not fully understand the concepts of gender expression identity, some children in kindergarten and even younger have identified as transgender or understand they have a gender identity that is different from their sex assigned at birth. This may present itself in different ways, including dress, activity, preference, experimenting with dramatic play, feeling uncomfortable, self-identifying with their sex assigned at birth. However, gender nonconformity does not necessarily indicate that an individual is transgender and all forms of gender expression should be respected. So you see in kindergarten coming forward an attempt to at least uh, teach or promote or push a certain idea of how gender relates to sex at birth. Now, what's interesting is educators are instructed to partner with the hold, community. Hold, hold that thought. Let go me, ahead. Let me, go ahead. Let me. I think there's a, there's a there's some good news in that though. That uh, it's the recognition that gender nonconformity does not necessarily indicate that an individual is transgender. True. That's I think point. that's a, that's really helpful because mm. you know the, the the research that's been done in the last. 10, 15 years shows that about 80% of, of students That's right. who, who wrestle with transgender type issues, eventually, as the research put it, that they mature out of that and end up having a settled, sort of a settled conviction about uh, their gender identity connecting with their biological sex. They just naturally grow out of it, so right. to speak. That's right. Um, so I think if this... You know, to to suggest that uh, sort of, I guess maybe the way I'd put it would be, you know, don't don't jump to conclusions mm. about whether a person is transgender or not based on the experience of gender dysphoria uh, that they might experience as a middle school or a high school student. I think is is really wise advice. I think so too. Uh, now, the, so, the the part that you mentioned, you know, all forms of gender expression should be respected. Uh, you know, maybe we can cash that out a little bit and right. talk about what you know what that might look like. Exactly. If That's... it's if it's something like um, you know having restrooms that are gender neutral. Yeah. In the schools, um, 
I'm I'm less concerned about that than maybe other things that might uh, you know promote be promoting an agenda that would be encouraging people to do something that might be more drastic. And you know once they get once they get a little older, you know if they you know end up having you know gender reassignment surgery or something like that, that's right. a lot more difficult to to reverse. Um, so. Where the rubber meets the road is where this stuff gets really sticky, and people disagree. And people differ how they view it. My, so, so my concern is that after this framework with kindergartners, educators are instructed to partner with the community by bringing in different guest speakers who will serve as role models. So they mention, for example, include individuals of all genders, which in another passage they said there's an infinite number of genders. So I'm not sure how you bring in an infinite number of people, but I digress being the, the philosopher here. The point is, they say, make sure you bring in people who are transgender. Since we live in a diverse state and there's people with a wide range of beliefs, part of me says, okay, like fine. But what they don't do is they don't encourage the inclusion of people who have stories of, say, sex change regret or the medical evidence that sex change frequently does not provide the wholeness and long-term happiness people seek. So I'm actually just pushing it to saying, wait a minute, are we only going to show one side or are we actually going to educate kids? Because when you only show one side, you make it seem like this is settled and there's not a debate about this. And I think culturally, that's partly the idea they want us to have here is that this is completely settled. But I'm not sure that it is. If we're really educating kids and we really live in a diverse state, shouldn't we expose them to these different perspectives and let kids start to make up their own worldview rather than just push one side on them? Well, and I suspect that what we'll see in this is the presentation of a whole host of different options, but without any assessment going with them. Hmm. Um, so that we're le- students will be left with this sort of low-level relativism that any of these options are as good as the next. Mm. When in reality, uh, you know, we're not we're not doing people any favors if we don't offer some sort of assessment of you know how how these might contribute to a student actually flourishing in their life. Right. I, I don't even know if some of the other voices will be included in these panels. I. I'm suspicious that they won't. That's at least my concern that parents need to know about. Now, you mentioned earlier about California educators being on board. This struck me because my wife taught for a number of years math at a public school. And she was. we had a lot of conversations like, how do I respect the guidelines and rules that are there? Yet if a kid does want to talk about my life or my relationships or my faith, I'm open to in a way that's fair and just. Like we're always trying to balance those things respectfully, yet in a you know, in, in a strategic manner. And when I read this, I thought, wow, you know, chapter seven says that essentially all educators are to be on board with this new framework. And specifically it said achieving these goals requires that all teachers, professional learning staff, administrators, and district leaders share the responsibility. So teachers are instructed to encourage the formation of LGBTQ plus clubs on campus uniquely, address students with their desired pronoun and consistent with their gender identity, use books such as My Princess Boy, which our listeners can check out, 
hang rainbow flags in their classroom to ensure that all gender identities and expressions are welcome in the classroom. So what we're starting to see is teachers are kind of being told you have to view relationships and identity and sexuality through this framework if you're going to teach here. Now, I'm not going to tell a teacher listening how they have to operate according to their conscience. But this is coming across a line, so to speak, where it's no longer an issue that's out there. But teachers before the Lord, and I know my wife would have to, now teaching math, it might be a little easier than something else. But there comes a point where you just go, wait a minute, this is violating my rights as a Christian educator to live according to what I think is true. It really puts Christian educators, I think, in a bind. So let's let's look at some of the specific things teachers are being asked to do. Um, what, what about addressing students with their desired name and pronoun? Um, I mean, I, I want to be I want to be careful that we don't you know play into a narrative that is contrary to a Christian worldview. But I think teachers probably need some help on deciding, well, what hills am I actually going to die on here? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, for, for example, would that be a hill that you would die on? Uh, you, know, using, you know, using a child's preferred name and pronoun. So here's where my concern is. I've talked with people on both sides of this issue. I have a friend, a mutual friend of ours, who says, look, on my integrity, <laughs> I'm not going to be forced to refer to a biological male as a female. This violates my rights and integrity mm-hmm. as a person. And I might see it differently than he does, but part of me says, shouldn't he have the right to live in, and teach that way, not be forced to? On the flip side, I have friends that I've talked to, and they're like, it's just, it's a pronoun, it's a name. I'm not going to die on that hill. That doesn't cause me any cognitive dissonance before the Lord, before my conscience. And I actually say, fine. But what this framework is doing is it's not allowing the people who in their conscience before the Lord who really say, gosh, I'm being forced by the speech code to use certain language. That's kind of the concern whether or not I personally would do it. Those people are getting rooted out, so to speak. And we've seen this with a teacher in Virginia who was, you know, lost his job and they're working this through the courts right now. So some of this remains to be played out in the courts but it does put a good number of religious believers and even people like Jordan Peterson, who doesn't have a problem with it religiously, but from a free speech standpoint right. from mm-hmm. Canada, like, I don't want to be coerced into doing this. So what, what, what are the options for teachers uh, if they're required to d- do a number of these things? Say they're required to hang rainbow flags in their classroom. Yeah. Uh, if they're if they're required to, uh, you know, promote uh, the formation of some of these organizations mm-hmm. in classrooms, uh, what what options do they have? Assuming that they want to stay employed. Yeah. Because and I would, I guess my my default position for teachers in the public schools is to keep your place at the table here. Right. Because I get it. because if you leave your position, the chances are that the person who replaces you is not going to have the same kind of sensitive conscience that you do. Um, So, you know, I I have have great sympathy for teachers who are, they were trying to navigate this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can we, can can we help them with some 
you know, some guidelines about where to draw some lines and what what hills to die on? So legally, I don't know the answer to that. I, I'm not a, a lawyer, and I don't want to speak outside of my expertise. I've talked to some of my friends in Canada who have wrestled with this, and some say, well, they require me to put up posters. I put it up on the back of the door. <laughs> or like, just on their way before the Lord, they will put up things strategically that they feel like, you know, is not encroaching on their ability to teach, right? So there's always creative ways to try to just push back on that. Um, Gosh, when it comes to gender pronouns, I've heard certain people say, look, I just won't use any gender pronouns in class for anybody. Well, that becomes crazy. Like it honestly becomes nuts, I heard one teacher who said, I just won't use gender pronouns for that person in particular. But then the person said, why don't just not even using them, ignoring them gets me kind of in in trouble, so to speak. So my advice would probably be I would go to the higher ups in your school and I would talk with them. I would probably talk with a lawyer. If you find yourself, you know, the Alliance for Defending Freedom, I would call them right away and say, what are my options? What can I do? It's better to find that ahead of time than it is too late. But we also have to ask our consciences, like, just because I feel bad doing something doesn't mean it's actually wrong to do it. So I have a friend who's a youth pastor, and he was asked to be an LGBTQ club advisor. I said, did you do it? He goes, of course. I said, why? He goes, because LGBTQ kids wanted to hang out with me. So he had no problem doing it. And they actually started asking him, well, what does the Bible say about this? And a couple of kids came to his youth group and became believers. And they asked him all this stuff. So I think we have to ask ourselves really clearly, what hill am I going to die on? When is my religious freedom being violated? And there does come a point where an educator might have to say, you know what? I'm going to find another means of employment. I can only push my conscience so Far. And I think if my wife was forced to do all these, and I'm not saying they're forcing everybody to do these. There's a difference between what written in and maybe leeway that principles give. But if she was forced to do some of these, I think there would come a point where we would just say on principle, we're probably going elsewhere. Let me recommend another uh, another resource for our listeners on this. Uh, it's it's a, an organization called Gateways to Better Education. Uh, and you can contact them at the, the, the website is gogateways.org. It's headed by a longtime friend of mine, Eric Buer, mm. who has been navigating these pathways for Christian students in, or Christian teachers in the public schools for the last 20, 25 years. And they have lots of experience at advising teachers about what they, what they can and cannot do within the law. Uh, and I'm, my guess is that they'll have something to say, really helpful guidelines in some of these areas too. So that's gogateways.org. Uh, it's just it's the best organization that I know of that helps teachers navigate through some of this. Now, here's the the other thing that's sort that I think is is easy to observe um, at first glance with these new standards is the desire to be inclusive of kids. And, and teachers, I think, regardless of how they view their gender, their sexuality, their orientation, if you want to use that term. Um, and it, it sounds on the surface like they're creating this, this really big tent uh, to include as, as many people so that kids who are, who are genuinely wrestling with some of these things 
don't feel like they have no place to go. Um, but it's it's not it's not hard to envision a scenario where there will be people coming from different worldviews, uh, people who see issues of sexuality differently, who might end up being the ones marginalized themselves. Mm. Uh, so I'm curious, how do you think that uh, people of other faiths besides Christian, maybe Muslim, uh, Jewish faith, Mormon, uh, what do you think their reaction will be to these health standards and uh, having having their kids in the public schools being exposed to this? Well, I think the first thing they need to do is they need to read them. Read the standards themselves. My blog will give you a, a summary of it, but go look at it yourself. I think they'll, they'll recognize— Although you should— we should warn people in advance. You're in for a tough slog. It is, yeah. By there's going through hundreds all these. of pages, and there's and there's a lot of it that, I mean, and we should say this again. There's a lot of it we think is very positive, of course, and very helpful, of course. Uh, so we don't we we don't want to be perceived as just focusing in on the 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 fairly small percentage of material That's that right. is, that is potentially we think harmful. That's uh, right, but. So, so at least at least read the part that's about sexual health. Right. I don't if, think they'll have concerns else. probably about the rest of it. Um, so you find words like openness, diversity, inclusion all over this report. In fact, at the beginning, it mentions socioeconomic, racial, religious diversity. So clearly the framers of this are aware that people of a range of religious beliefs make up California. But when it comes to the actual policies... Whether they intend it to or not, they are not promoting a neutral view of sexuality. In fact, I'm not even sure you could promote a neutral view of sexuality. And I'll give you an example, a pretty frank one that I think our, our audience needs to hear. So junior high teachers are encouraged to guide students through role-playing activities, break up students in a group, give them a scenario, they role-play, they act it out, and then they present it back to the group as a whole. This is junior high kids, okay? So 12 to 14 roughly. And here's the prompt. Two students are at a party. One asks the other for oral sex. Now students are to discuss this scenario in small groups, dramatize it, and bring it back. Now the teacher then leads students through a quote, objective discussion on the activity, being sure to reiterate, quote, that there's not one correct answer and often more than one answer, as every situation is unique to each individual student. Now, the attempt of this activity is to create kids space to think about this, to process this, to hear other people, like I totally get that. But essentially what this teacher is saying is we can break kids up into groups, and somebody who says, yes, I decide oral sex is great, let's do it. Somebody else who says, no, it's not healthy. She can't make any judgment between those. And they're both presented as if they're equal, fine alternatives for a junior hire to consider. So the attempt of this is to try to be neutral, but it's not. They're giving a message of sexuality, in this case, Oral sex that just says there's difference. We can disagree. If you think it's fine for you, it's fine for you. If you think it's wrong for you, it's wrong for you. It's a relativistic view that flies in in the face of 
a more religious view that says, no, God designed sex for a purpose. And my concern is not that I'm afraid of my kids to get a different viewpoint. I mean, I take my students to Berkeley and we bring in atheists. But this is a systematic attempt that directly conflicts. And I could give you example after example here that it claims to be. So here's another example. It says bring in panels and specifically invite somebody from Planned Parenthood. But it doesn't say invite somebody from a local pregnancy resource center. Why not hear both sides? If we're really interested in educating kids, they should hear both sides, but they don't. It's consistently one side that's presented, and that side is at odds with a religious view, in particular Christian view of sexuality. Well, and it's not like that other side is a, you know, a minuscule minority of people. Yeah. You know, I mean, the other side, it's a, it's a substantial, you know, it's a, I'm, a, I, I'm, a, I'm not even sure it's correct to call it a minority view. Hmm. It may actually be, you know, it may actually be the majority view uh, exactly that they're right. that they're not being exposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's another part in here that I found I found really interesting, and that is um, the middle school students are taught to recognize the various forms of abuse, mm-hmm. and I found it, and which of course, I mean, most of this I think is just is terrific and necessary because, you know, I mean, God help. You know the middle school students who think that physical, emotional, and sexual abuse is okay. Yeah, and we've got to correct that. Um, but it also describes financial abuse, which I'm not exactly sure what that is. <laughs> right. Uh, that may that may be your your parents telling you you can't have a car is financial abuse. Um, but and then they also mentioned spiritual abuse. Um, it's really, I mean, what it, what exactly? Do you think constitutes spiritual abuse here, and how you know, and how where do you think that might come out uh, in a discussion in a classroom? This is where it's really hard because let's face it, there has been the crisis in the Catholic Church. We've seen it in Southern Baptist churches, especially on the issue of sexuality. People have used power and position to I, take advantage of Perfect kids. examples of spiritual abuse. And, and we can't deny that. So in, in principle, I'm not opposed, I'd almost rather call it power abuse and not single out spiritual abuse. I, that smacks of kind of a, an agenda to me and maybe I'm reading into it. But here's what it says specifically. It says, and I'll, and I'll read you the quote, it says, spiritual abuse includes, amongst other things, quote, not allowing boyfriend or girlfriend slash partner to do things they enjoy or to better themselves. Let me just say it again. Not allowing boyfriend, girlfriend, partner to do things they enjoy or to better themselves. Well, would it be considered spiritually abusive for a 13-year-old girl to refuse to watch porn for spiritual reasons with her boyfriend? Because you're not allowing this person to do things they enjoy. And maybe this person says, well, I enjoy doing it in your presence. You're not allowing me to do it for spiritual reasons. You're making me feel guilty. You're judging me. This is wrong. Now, I suspect the person would push back and go, well, wait a minute. That individual also has consent. So you can't force that person to violate their consent, which is filled throughout these frameworks. Basically, the sexual standard is limited to consent. But my point is when they start coming up with these standards and it's based upon consent on one side and then enjoyment for somebody else on the other side and you can't prevent somebody from doing something they enjoy for spiritual reasons, there's going to be conflict that comes into play. And this is where you see it. 
So what I don't see is the idea that, you know, maybe actually porn damages relationships. Yeah. I mean, you realize this, Scott, yeah. I couldn't find it anywhere in this entire framework. And you don't even need spiritual reasons for that. Just sociological, psychological, scientific reasons. That's not mentioned in here at all. So to me, I'm just like, wait a minute, this spiritual abuse is not clear. And they're missing a huge amount of material that is a genuine health crisis. Here's what I wonder about that. If the definition you read in, includes, quote, not allowing boyfriend, girlfriend, or partners to do things they enjoy or better themselves, on what basis should someone say no to the advances of a Catholic priest or a Southern Baptist youth pastor mm. who gave spiritual reasons to justify what we would call, I think, pedophilia. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think... Would, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't we be concerned about somebody being able to turn that definition on its head? I, I think they would say, well, there's not consent that is there. And there's more than just this definition that is present. But it raises these kinds of conflicts that says, wait a minute, what if somebody did consent to this? What if they agreed to it? I mean, and Still, you think yeah. about what about a 12-year-old girl, 17-year-old boy? That's legal. So we don't have to bring the whole priest thing into it. That's actually legal. If they consent, is that okay? My goodness, that age disparity and the nature of the act, there's so much more going on that would be it just... It's not covered in this is part of my concern. Yeah, it seems, it seems like the, you know, again, and I'm, I'm not reading the whole context for this, sure. but it, it, it seems like on the surface, this is, this is actually making it harder for people to say no to mm -hmm. unwanted s sexual activity, um, uh, especially if it's if it's emerging from someone's spiritual convictions. That's right. Or if, yeah, so you're the bigot. You're the one who's intolerant. If you say, actually, I think Scripture teaches this and there's spiritual reasons, you could be harming somebody's self-image. You could be harming the way they feel about them. You are spiritually abusing me because you're saying this behavior is wrong. That's exactly what my concern is. I think that gets to the heart of it. Well, and, you know... Both of us having been teenage guys before, um, th that just could add another, you know, another potential rationalization to the, you know, to the to the toolbox uh, for, uh, pe you know, people who just who just want to, you know, just want to uh, enjoy themselves at the, really at the expense of their partner. I think that um, I think that's right. And. and by the way, because we're running out of time, our goal here is not to tell people listening they need to pull out of public school. Our goal is to inform them and to make sure they know thoughtfully what they're doing and to approach this in a biblical, careful, sober manner. Yeah, please please read this on your own. Yes. Uh, read Sean's blog on this is really helpful. We'd encourage you to you know look at the resources through Gateways to Better Education. Uh, the gogateways.org that we mentioned earlier. There are lots of really good resources out there. Please, I guess, I guess our plea for parents is don't go into this blind. That's right. And for anybody else who works with students, that's why we're doing the podcast. Pastors, just inform your congregation, even if it's just sending out 
this podcast or another article that somebody's done help people be informed and educated and thoughtful. And parents, go right in there and find out what is being taught because even different principals and superintendents will apply these standards differently. Be involved, find out what's going on, and just make the best decisions for your family. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. If you want to learn more about us, find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed our conversation today, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.